Tim had told me that uh, he was going to sing something kind of peppy. <laughs> and uh, I didn't recognize it, and I didn't know it was coming. So last night I had a bit of a dream about it, and uh, the version that I imagined was very different than what we actually <laughs> sang. So. Uh, this is uh, the seven churches geographically in the Mediterranean, and you can see the boot of Italy uh, that should be on the left side there, which helps you recognize that these churches are in modern Turkey. And John, if you can spot the label Patmos is on the island of Patmos, and so he writes this series of letters. We went through the vision that he had where the Lord revealed himself to John in chapter 1, and it is out of that vision that these messages come. And so they would travel to Ephesus, and you can see Ephesus there, which was uh, the largest city in the province of Asia, and by the way, uh, the Roman Empire uh, consisted of their homeland, which was Rome and the heart of Italy. And then as they conquered the world, they became the custodians of provinces of people that were not native, you see, to, to who they are. They were foreign, foreign language, foreign peoples. And they domesticated them. They imposed their administration, their life on these foreign peoples. And the emperor of Rome would administrate them through proconsuls. They would be like a vice president to a president or a governor to a president. Our system's a little bit different, but these representatives, these proconsuls, these governors of the provinces would operate in the a power, the authority of the emperor in Rome. And so they would be representatives on, on, so to speak, controlled and occupied soil, if that makes sense. I just wanted to help you understand that a little bit. And so we've looked at the letter to Ephesus, and this would be the order in which they traveled. Uh, they would be delivered counter, uh, clockwise. So Ephesus, Smyrna, and now today, Pergamum. And Pergamum is modern Bergama. So I'd like to just uh, quickly show you a little bit about ancient Pergamum, the city. This is a picture of the ruins, and you'll see a circle come up. That's the theater. So sometimes we think of that as an amphitheater, but it's not actually an amphitheater. An amphitheater is a, an entire circus or stadium. There it is again as you look at these different models based on the archaeology that they have uh, excavated. 
There it is again. And then here is one picture, again based on archaeology. The inset picture is actually from the museum in Berlin, Berlin where there is an actual model uh, of what you are looking at in the drawing based on archaeological projection and excavation. And you can't see the theater because it would be to the left just down the slope. Uh, this is the Acropolis, and that is a major, it is the mega um, offering, uh, the place of offering in Pergamum. A little bit about Pergamum. Pergamum is the capital of the province of Asia. It's not the largest city, that's Ephesus. And uh, several of the cities that are among the seven that receive messages from John are very, very uh, important and in competition with each other for honors and uh, uh, kind of like I mentioned last week, say between Chicago and New York or, or San Francisco and Los Angeles. Um, the capital, uh, it became, it was, the, it was the center of the kingdom of the Attalids, which were a series of kings. And the last king, King Attalus III, A-T-T-U-L-U-S, Attalus, he died in 133 and he bequeathed, he willed his kingdom to Rome. And parts of that kingdom were divided into other provinces, but the heart of the kingdom became the province of Asia, and Pergamum became the capital, if you will, this, the administrative center of the province, the Roman province of Asia, where the proconsul and the governor would reside. Uh, Pergamum is famous for a lot of things. I don't have time to run through all the lists, but they had a famous library that rivaled the great library of Alexandria. And there's, it's somewhat legendary uh, that um, whereas ancient paper was papyrus, uh, it was at Pergamum that they certainly popularized and it became famous for parchment, which was made out of skins. And it's actually kind of derived from the name Pergamum. You can see a lot of the temples and sanctuaries to the patron gods that dot the Acropolis in that picture. Uh, the sanctuary of Escher, Asclepius, who was the god of healing, uh, the god of Zeus, god Zeus, all these patron gods are represented. You get a sense of the landscape, not just in terms of architecture, but of, of social life. What if there were sanctuaries and temples dotting the landscape of Visalia. When you went to shop, you drove past temples and sanctuaries, and, and people would acknowledge, and there would be... I mean, everyone was polytheistic in that era, except the Jewish people and those 
who sprang from Judaism, and that would be the Christians, because Jesus was a Jew, a practicing Jew. I want to just make one last notable comment. It is at Pergamum. Um, I, I know I didn't used to know much about Roman history, so I don't expect the average person to, but it, it may help position uh, our understanding of all these letters and a little bit more about Pergamum, the letter to Pergamum today, because it is at Pergamum, which has if you will, the seat of administrative power, what we would call the capital. It was there that the first temple to the Emperor Augustus was built. And it was built to Augustus and to Roma, the goddess Roma. The first one. And it was the, so to speak, initiation of a cult of emperor worship. And that was established in 29 BC. Augustus became the emperor in AD 27. The Romans would deify, well, it was Augustus who deified Julius Caesar, his great uncle. Julius Caesar adopted, he was then called Octavian. And he, Octavian adopted, uh, deified his adopted or his great uncle, so now his father. And when all of Rome, uh, as it were, the Senate approved the deification of Julius Caesar, Augustus became the son of God, the son of a God. And it is Augustus who is mentioned when the census is taken and Jesus is born in Luke. So that kind of orients us a little bit to the importance of understanding a little bit about the Roman world because that's the world into which, and that's the time into which God began to move in incredible ways. And it was in many ways a perfect time, as Paul says, because there was a common language, the language of Greek, that was the language of trade. Uh, there was the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome that had been established under Augustus. People could move the Roman road system. So it was, a, it was a, in many ways a new, a new world of sorts. And that is the world to which John, uh, Jesus in his vision to John and the message of Pergamum is sent. Uh, here's, we've been looking at the different uh, patterns. There's a, a pattern for each of the messages, and here we see the pattern uh, as, I'm going to leave it up for you. We've discussed it at length, so I'm not going to repeat myself, but for those of you it should be, I think, printed in, in your bulletin in the notes page. So with that pattern in mind, I'm going to read the letter to the church in Pergamum, starting at Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp 
two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith or faith in me or your trust in me or your loyalty to me. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent, which means change your course. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. I was a young, a young boy with my father. Uh, we had a 57, 56 Chevy. Those were nice cars. Wish I had that 56 Chevy today. It had bench seats, and uh, I was beside my dad sitting on the front seat, and we were at an intersection when a procession of cars was moving by. And it was at this time that I have my first memory of the word honor. That procession, my dad told me, was in honor of someone who had died. And uh, this was an explanation that was prompted by my question, Dad, why don't we go? Why don't we go? And he had stopped there and turned his headlights on and kind of just seemed to show respect. And he explained to me that we were showing respect by waiting and by turning on our headlights to let the people in the procession know that we were kind of of one heart and mind with them. Well, years later, that came to mind for me, I don't want to, say how many years later, but uh, I was pastoring in San Francisco at that time, and I happened to be riding in a hearse that was bearing the body of someone who had died. And we were at the beginning of a procession, and processions like that move methodically and fairly slowly so that everybody can kind of stay in line. And it's difficult because in the Bay Area, you move through a lot of intersections. It was in a morning around 9 a.m., and as it turned out, people were rushing to work. 
The traffic in San Francisco will either drive you mad or teach you great endurance, patience, and long-suffering. It taught me long-suffering and how to smile. I learned to smile a lot. That was opposed to cursing and waving my hands, which was the way I had uh, operated for a long time before the Bay Area and before the pastorate. But anyway, this guy in a BMW cut right in front of us. We were in his way. And I thought, that's the definition of dishonor. The highest example of honor I've ever witnessed was in 1994, February 1994. Ida Tuck was a member of our congregation at the church in San Francisco. And uh, we did a memorial for her in San Francisco, but her home was in Monroe, Oklahoma. And so, uh, Muldrow, excuse me, Oklahoma. So we flew to Oklahoma and we did a service in Muldrow, Oklahoma at the, I got a, it's a mouthful, at the East Side Free Will Baptist Church. And afterward, the funeral director asked me if I would like to ride with him which it was not that customary, although I'd mentioned an earlier occasion, it was rare that I would do that. And I said, I would, I would, I would sure, I would like that. I didn't have a car anyway. So we were riding in the front of this procession in Muldrow, Oklahoma, and I witnessed something I've not seen I'd not seen before and I've never seen since. As we made our way through town, people stopped on the sidewalk. Pedestrians stopped and faced the procession and took their hats off that they were wearing hats and they bowed their heads. People that were in traffic pulled to the side of the road, those in oncoming and those in the same direction, pulled to the side of the road. If they were wearing hats, they took their hats off. And that continued through town and out of town, even into the countryside. We had a 13 mile, about 25 minute ride to Aikens Cemetery, which by the way, some of you may have heard of Pretty Boy Floyd. Charles Pretty Boy Floyd. He was um, public enemy number one in 1934, which was before my time, whether you believe it or not. And, uh, and yet, he was on the FBI's most wanted list, and he is buried in Aikens Cemetery. But even out in the country, even at intersections, people stopped. Cowboys took off their hats. Oncoming traffic where you're driving at a faster pace pulled to the side of the road. That, for me, is an unparalleled display of honor. And they did not even know the person that was being honored, whether they deserved it or not. They were conferring Respect and honor. That's a very biblical concept. 
because the notion of honor in the Bible is very different than the notion of honor in our world. They overlap, of course, but as we would expect, biblical honor involves esteem and value and showing respect. It values highly, but it also bestows value, and that's part of the blessing nature of honor. And of course, honor all comes from God, doesn't it? He's the one that begins, we read in Genesis with the creation, dignity upon humanity. He makes us in his image. And he bestows an even higher degree of dignity and honor in the death of his son while we were yet sinners. Out of love, he died for us. And in his resurrection, a new humanity, a new promise, a greater one, a new inheritance. All this is offered not based on our earning power or our merit, but on God's honoring, as it were, out of love, bestowing value. We just have to receive it accept it, own it, and honor it. Love, I do believe, is the heartbeat of honor. We don't maybe associate love with honor, but I always want us to see that love, God's love, God is love, we read. Love has a part in every other word, either by contrast or similarity. Honor is close to love. It's close to grace. We should not think of it as something separate, but it is a distinct expression of God's love. So I would say love is the heartbeat of honor. Paul commands us to be Listen to these words from Romans chapter 12, verse 10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Honoring others is not, I'll just speak for myself, I would say biblically and theologically, it's not our natural instinct to honor others. I know it's not my natural instinct. My natural instinct is to honor me, to seek to gain honor, to defend my honor, to hold on to my honor, to uplift my honor. I'm using a pretty big word for what we do each and every day. If we react in anger, we withhold forgiveness. Isn't that about our honor, as puny as it may be, or as big? Only by the power of the Holy Spirit can we conquer our own desire for honor in the pursuit and the calling and the command to love and honor others, which is what we are called to do in Jesus Christ. 
Such an honor as God's honor is far different from that honor chased by our world, wealth, power, celebrity. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humility forms the foundation of honor, just like it forms the foundation of love. Just as the low ground forms the base of a high elevation. The message to the church of Pergamum doesn't use the word honor, but honor is very much a part of what's going on in this message, in the situation, in the drama of life that John, Jesus through John, is addressing in this letter to the church of Pergamum. Honor the Lord no matter what. And I'll, I'll tell you, um, a big issue in this letter is not only that you have been loyal. I can't think of a better way to honor others or at least an element of honoring others. Loyalty. Loyalty honors. Shelley thinks I'm a very loyal person to a fault. But I like the thought because, you know, we're loyal no matter which way the wind blows. We're loyal through thick and thin. Loyal is not fickle. Fickle is unpredictable, isn't it? When someone's fickle, you don't use the word fickle, you should learn to use the word fickle. It's a good word. And it's applicable a lot. But loyalty fosters trust. Did you know that if you're faithful, if you're predictable, you're trustworthy. People are able to put their faith in you. You inspire faith in, from others when you're trustworthy, dependable, predictable. doesn't mean there's no mystery, no adventure, but people know what you're going to do. They know what you're going to be like. We call it character, right? So when, when Jesus commends them as he commends them here, he says, you, have held, you hold fast to my name. You maintain my cause is another way of talking about it. He says, you have not given up, denied, let go of your faith in me. Don't some of your translations translate it that way, your faith in me? But now think about loyalty, your loyalty. The word faith we often associate with believing the unbelievable. Well, it's about believing in God, in Jesus Christ, that's the first order of faith. But it's also trusting. And when we're trusting, we become faithful when we're fixed on him. And I, I will tell you, in the, in the 
Greek and Roman world, the notion of faith carried very much the idea of being trustworthy, loyal, dependable, trusted. So when he says, you've not turned away or given up your faith in me, really I think we need to qualify that and understand he's saying, you're loyal to me. And then he goes right on and he talks about um, Antipas, right? And what does he say of him? He says, you're my faithful witness. You're my trustworthy. You're my loyal witness. Your testimony is predictable. It's not going to change. It's solid. Even in tribulation, even in challenge. It's a high commendation. He honors Antipas. He holds him up. And he says to the Pergamum Christians, he says, you didn't waver, you didn't, you didn't run away, you didn't ditch me, you didn't turn away from me, you didn't deny my name. Even when Antipas was put to death before you, and that would be natural because since Pergamum was the capital, all, everyone in the, in the Asian province that was brought to a question of justice, that would happen in Pergamum. Antipas may have come from another place, but the wording here is in effect saying, in your city, in your midst before your eyes, so to speak, even if not literally. And because that's where the proconsul would be, and he tried all such issues, all such issues. But what he goes on to talk about when he moves from the situation, what he knows, he says, what I know in verse 13 I've been talking about, but the situation, he says, I, I have this against you, and there he talks about compromise, compromise. He talks about, he calls this local guy, hope you're following me here, he calls this local guy a false teacher by calling him Balaam. His name isn't really Balaam, but he calls him a Balaam. He says, there's this teacher, you know who he is, I'll call him Balaam. That's the sense of what he's saying here. And Balaam, back in the Old Testament, Numbers 22 through 25, tells us about Balaam, but he becomes a figure of lore. <laughs> he becomes kind of a, a symbol for someone who, back in, that, back in Numbers 22, Balak was the king of Moab. And when the people of Israel were looking to make their way to the Holy Land, you know, they had been wandering in the wilderness, right? So they come to Moab, and there's this mass of people, and the king, Balak, he says, what are we going to do? We can't take them on. There are too many. We can't, fa we can't win face-to-face -face in battle. And so Balak says, let's get Balaam. 
He'll work his magic. He'll put a spell on them. And what happened was they deceived the people, kind of like uh, the threat of Khrushchev when he was the Russian czar, as it were, uh, the Soviet leader. Uh, He said, even though they had the arms build up, he wanted to defeat us from within through the deterioration of our character as a people. Well, that's kind of what is happening and what we're referred to when we're thinking about a Balaam who is, he's called a Balaam because he's leading people to compromise when it comes to their faith in Jesus and to commit spiritual immorality spiritual adultery, if you will. And that's the imagery that's talked about here when it talks about eating meat offered to idols. Well, that's spiritual adultery, isn't it? You saw all the temples and the sanctuaries, meat offered to idols. When we were in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 10, that was an issue that Paul was dealing with in, with the Corinthians because in their culture, it wasn't something that went on off in a church. It was a part of everyday life. It wasn't sequestered. It was to be, if your kids wanted to play soccer, if you wanted to have your children in dance, if you wanted to be involved in school, all the things that you're involved with that is a part and safe, as we think of it, in our culture that we engage in and we don't even think about. We think of that as secular and we think of this as religious, but that was all mixed together back then. So there were issues of of sacrificing that went on for everything, everything, before every soccer match, before every dance, before every recital, before every play, before every musical event, there would be a, a reference to the gods and honor to the gods would be shown. So the question comes down to us, I'm going to come back to Pergamum next week uh, because I I haven't gotten through two-thirds of what I wanted to share this morning. But this idea of loyalty and honor, that's really at the heart of it. We saw last week, we'll see again next week, that you could be brought before the proconsul just because you were called or suspected of being a Christian. Just the name Christian was not something that prompted inquiry and an investigation. What it prompted was conviction. And conviction just with the word of the proconsul could mean death, execution. We don't have any kind of pressure like that as Christians. And the compromise often comes with indifference. Because we're not 
practicing honoring the Lord. We've lost a sense of what it means to honor the Lord. To give him space in our busy days and lives. It pinches a little bit to think about this. I'm standing a little bit above you, but on this subject, I, I don't stand above you at all. I love it when C.S. Lewis said, uh, and I'm going to put this in my own words, you don't know how really bad you are until you try to be good. Jesus inspires me to be good. I want to be like him. You don't have to twist my arm. He inspires me. He's the one who loves me no matter what. He's the one who challenges me to do things that only he can do. To love enemies. To love people who are different. To love people who I think or you think are nasty or wrong-headed. You know, but that, that, that does, that inspires me because you're not going to hear that or see that anywhere else. And that makes it unique. That, make, that really, to me, makes it divine. That, that bonifies, you know, that makes, that guarantees to my heart that's, that's something that's out of this world. And I love it when I'm on the receiving end of it. But I also want to be on the giving end. And yet every day I realize how I can't do that in my own strength. I can only do it in his. So he gets all the merit. He gets all the glory. He gets all the honor. And the more, it's, isn't that simple, what I'm just describing? It really, if you boil it down to that, the, what we call the yoke of Jesus' teaching was love the Lord your God with heart, being, and strength. In other words, all of you. And your neighbor as yourself. In other words, there's the golden rule. Do unto others, love them as you would have them, Love you. Do unto you. If we use that as our guide in love, it will deepen and enrich our ability to love God and love others. It is a chastening experience, too. You don't get cocky doing that. It's humbling, and you, you grow in your faith because you realize in ev- it applies to everything. Everything. And as you trust the Lord in all those little everythings, you grow. Do you fail? Yeah, but then you appreciate God's grace. And you will become loyal. And you will become more God-honoring. 
Well, I wanted to stress that because if you start talking about compromise, you get lost. And this week, as I was thinking about compromise, I did a lot of work on compromise. I thought, I'll just talk, I'll, I'll put together something and we'll, we'll talk about how to defeat com- compromise so that we don't. And I realized we don't want to just become police because when I start thinking about compromise, I see it in everyone else. I got to stamp it out. But what if I set an example of honor, honor of God, honor of others, love of God, love of others? And you know what? Quite practically, as a pastor, that's helped me to address with the right attitude and the right perspective issues of compromise that may spring up within the congregation or might threaten or jeopardize someone else. So I'll take up some of the other things, but think about honoring the Lord no matter what. And in terms of application, think of loving the Lord your God and your neighbor as yourself. Not just as, wow, isn't that cool? That's a great banner, but as that's our task this week and every week. We stand. I'll close this in prayer. I want to remind you, I'll be down here along with uh, elders, uh, deacons, spouses. If you want to pray, if God's spoken to your heart, or you want to intercede either for yourself or for someone else. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you how there is this uh, underlying truth that we see in so many places across the pages of your word. And it's all ultimately packaged in a person. Jesus Christ. And now poured into our lives through faith through the Holy Spirit. We love you, Lord. We praise you. Help us to make honoring you, loving you, central to our lives this week. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said, God bless you.